If you would be opening your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, we're going to notice for a few moments, beginning with verse number 11. Ephesians 4, beginning with verse number 11. Paul writes, saying, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. They will henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now our passage is part of a larger context which includes verses 7 through 12, and it is vital to the Ephesian letter Paul wrote so that we can better understand exactly what Paul was talking about. And the purpose of this, we need to understand its greater context. We need to understand the Holy Spirit's message that He delivered and the purpose of that message through the pen of Paul. John Quincy Adams observed He said, the first and almost the only book deserving of universal attention is the Bible. He said, I speak as a man of the world to men of the world, and I say to you, search the Scriptures. The earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hopes that they will prove useful citizens of their country and respectable members of society. Of course, his statement was based upon the statement that Christ made. He said to uh, those uh, Jewish leaders, he said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, John 5, 39. Now we need to be able to understand completely, the Bible does not say, let someone else search the Scripture. We are to search the Scripture. That is a very personal responsibility that every person has. Whether that individual is a Christian or not a Christian, that doesn't take away the responsibility of every single person who lives on this world, they are to search the Scripture. It is my personal responsibility to search the Scripture, to find out what God wants me to do and what He has in store for me. For just a few moments tonight, I want to investigate what the Bible says about two ordained offices that God has established in the church of Christ, the church for which Christ Jesus gave His life, Acts 20, 28. And I want us to begin by considering Paul's message to the Ephesians. Normally when we talk about uh, church offices, we don't usually begin in the Ephesian letter, but I think it's a good spot to start tonight. Now the distinct features of God's eternal purpose are clearly portrayed in this letter. God purposed to save man from sin. 
before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. We learn that Jesus Christ is the one through whom God purposed this salvation, Ephesians 1.3-5. God's grace is, is revealed and enjoyed through the blood of Christ shed on the cross, Ephesians 1.7. We learn from Paul's letter that God revealed to mankind salvation through the gospel and only through the gospel, Ephesians 3.6 and verses 8-9. through 9. We learn from Paul's letter to the Ephesian brethren, all who accept Christ on His terms are saved in the church, which is a part of God's eternal purpose, Ephesians 3, 8-11. Now, when the Bible student properly understands God's eternal purpose, great things will happen in the life of that individual. Period. That's just the way it is. Notice some of the things that we will do when we better understand God's purpose. According to this Ephesian letter, we will strive to walk worthy of the vocation wherein we have been called. Ephesians 4.1 We will remember the four characteristics that Paul listed which are requirements of the developing Christian and in developing the cause of Christ and keeping the unity of the Spirit, Ephesians 4, 2. And we will continually strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 3. We will remember the foundation on which the unity of God is and does exist and upon which it can be kept, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We will remember the diversity of gifts, both ordinary and extraordinary, that was bestowed upon the church in Ephesus, and to the different members of that church, and its purpose, of course, designed to promote its unity, its harmony, and its efficiency. And we'll also be able to apply that truth in today's church and understand that the different offices of the church that God ordained, and there are two, is designed to carry out those exact same desirable traits. Of course, our focus is on the ordinary, not the extraordinary, because the age of the miracle has passed, 1 Corinthians 13. But we can still make application of what Paul talked about in our lives and in our congregations today. A man by the name of Norman Cousins, having spent a considerable time with Albert Schweitzer, a medical missionary and theologian at his hospital in Lamba Rene uh, in French Equatorial Africa. He wrote about those days long after they had ended. Notice what he said. Norman Cousins said, The biggest impression I had in leaving Lamba Rene was of the enormous outreach of a single human being. Yet such life was not without punishment of fatigue. He said Albert Schweitzer was supposed to have been a severe man in his demands on the people who he worked with. Yet any demands he made on others were as nothing compared to the demands he made on himself. He said history is willing to overlook almost anything, errors, paradoxes, personal weaknesses, or faults, if only a man is willing to give enough of himself to others. Now, 
we may not agree entirely with that sentiment. But in a lot of ways it is true. And we can make some application to that statement in all of our lives. After all, I believe the Lord is willing to forgive the sins of anyone who will repent of those sins as long as we become New Testament Christians and be obedient to what He's left for us. But for that to happen, we must be first willing to give all of ourselves to Him and to His cause. So I think we can make some application. Now our purpose tonight is to become better acquainted with the two ordained offices that God has placed in the church of Christ tonight. And who can fill those positions for the purpose of the church living in harmony, in unity, and in efficiency. Now first, we're going to begin with the office held by pastors. Pastors. Now, it is important to understand exactly what a pastor is. And so let's notice the description given to us in the New Testament. A pastor is not necessarily a preacher. Okay? I'm not a pastor. I am an evangelist, a preacher, a minister, a gospel preacher, whatever the the title that we want to name this particular position, and there are several throughout the New Testament. But most religions, most denominations in the world, what do they refer to their preacher as? A pastor. And they look to that preacher, they look to him or her in a lot of cases, as the leader of that organization. Now that's not scriptural. That cannot be supported by the Bible. So is the preacher the pastor? Well, let's notice how a pastor is described by the Holy Spirit. He's an older man, a man of maturity, and looked up to for his experience, for his wisdom and leadership ability. Now the word presbyter and the word presbytery come from the word translated into those two words. The Greek word that means all of those things that we mentioned. Wisdom, maturity, leadership ability. And it is used to refer to pastors of any particular congregation. 1 Timothy 4.4 Now he is also an overseer from where we get our English word bishop. Bishop. And that's what an overseer is. Acts 20.28 Titus 1.5-7 He is a shepherd of God's flock, and that is exactly what a pastor is. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Now, there are six designations in the New Testament that refer to that office, the office of pastor. We can break them really down into three categories. Because each of the categories come from the same word. Presbyter and elder come from the same Greek word. But one can be a presbyter, one can be referred to as an elder. Pastor and shepherd come from the same Greek word. You can be referred to as a pastor or a shepherd. Bishop and overseer come from the same Greek word. And one can be referred to as a bishop or an overseer if he occupies this office. Any of those six designations is a scriptural designation. And we commonly refer to those as elders. We don't have to, but that is the common reference. Now each time 
And eldership is mentioned in the New Testament. Notice that it is mentioned in plurality, meaning there were at least two men who formed that eldership. Also, they were leaders only within the congregation where they were members. You didn't have an eldership overseeing multiple congregations. Leaders were chosen from among the members of that particular congregation. Now when Paul made his statement in Acts 20, 28, he was specifically making reference to the church of Christ in Ephesus. Luke recorded the event saying this, Acts 20, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now, here's something that is so important. The office of pastor or elder is not simply a designation or a description given to certain men of a particular congregation. The eldership not only has a description, but it has a duty that must be fulfilled. It is a work in itself. Paul gave Timothy a list of qualifying characteristics or traits that one must meet if he is going to be an elder. Uh, He must possess the ability to be a teacher among the members of that congregation. 1 Timothy 3.2 Whether that is in a classroom setting or whether that is in an individual-to-individual study of God's Word. He must be, according to Paul, apt or have the ability to teach. Does that mean he has to teach a class on a continual basis? No, that's not what it means. But he must have the ability to teach a class. He must have the ability to preach the gospel, to teach the congregation, whether he does that on a regular basis or not. He must, like all Christians have the ability to sit down one-on-one with someone and teach them the gospel of Christ. He's to be a caretaker or an overseer of the congregation. Boy, that is a great responsibility, 1 Timothy 3, 5. He is to be a leader. And brethren, he does have authority in the church, Hebrews 13, 7. Think about the responsibilities that elders have. They are responsible for each soul who is a member of that particular congregation. Notice Hebrews 13, 17. The writer demands, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now let's notice the specific qualifications that Paul gave to Timothy. We're going to notice 1 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 1. In his letter, Paul said, This is a faithful saying. If a man desire the position of a bishop, slash overseer, slash elder, slash presbyter, slash pastor, slash shepherd... He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, 
one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. Talking about those outside the church, those who are not members, people of the community. Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, so here's what we see. An elder must first desire to be an elder. It should never be the case that a man is coerced into being an elder. His heart must be in it. He must be blameless. He must live a life above reproach. Paul does not intend sinlessly perfect. He intends godly. Someone who has a good reputation, right? He must be married to one wife. That has been a a bone of contention. So what does that mean? He must be married to one wife. God honors the marriage of one man to one woman. That means he cannot have been married divorced and married again for unscriptural reasons. And what that means, if that is the case, that must also mean that if he is a married man, he has divorced his wife because she has been unfaithful, and God has allowed and has accepted his second marriage, he is married to one woman because God accepts that marriage. That also means he cannot be married to multiple women at one time. He cannot be a polygamous. He must be vigilant. That means he's temperate or watchful. He must be sober or prudent. Now we might call that sensible. He must be of good behavior and respectable. He must be hospitable in his dealings with members of the church and those who are not members of the church. He must be apt to teach. He must be willing to do it and be able to do it. He must not be a drinker of alcohol. He must not be quarrelsome. He must not be greedy for money. He must be gentle and uncontentious. He must be one who leads his own household well. One who kept his children in reverent submission, under control with dignity. While a child is under the control of a parent, he must be taught to have the characteristics that all Christians must possess. Now, he cannot be a new convert. He must have been a member of the church at least for a period of time to grow into maturity. A young man without experience in this life cannot do what an elder is shouldered to do, lest he become conceited and prideful, thinking that he is in a position uh, where he simply can lord over anyone or, or have authority in some way that... Uh, enhances his personal ego. He has to have a good reputation outside the church among people with whom he deals on a daily basis. Wouldn't it be sad for someone to look at a man and say, well, I understand that he is a, he's a member of the church of Christ and he's a leader, he's an elder with that congregation and you cannot believe one word that he says. He's not honest in his dealings and he will be deceitful and he will cheat and he perhaps he acts in such a way and uses bad language. Maybe he drinks alcohol or does any number of things. Can you imagine the harm that would do to the congregation of the Lord's people? When a congregation does not have an eldership to guide, 
it is lacking. Notice what Paul told Timothy, or Titus rather, Titus 1 verse 5. Paul told Titus, he said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Here's something we need to understand. Because a, person, uh, because a congregation is lacking in this area of an eldership does not mean it is unscriptural. Okay, a, a congregation can be scripturally lacking an eldership. If there are no men qualified to be elders, we certainly do not place men in positions of authority who are not qualified. However, a congregation cannot fully be what God wants it to be if it is lacking in this area. doesn't mean it can't fulfill the work of the church as best to its ability, but it is still lacking. And that's what Paul told Timothy. Those in Crete were lacking. And it was up to Titus, or excuse me, Paul told Titus, it was up to Titus to go to Crete, to remain there, to set in order, to make sure that the congregations on that island were, would come to be under the oversight of qualified elders. Now, the office of pastor is not the only authorized office in the church. There, are, there is another office. Now, we've talked about pastors. Now, let's talk about the partners that God has placed in the church to help pastors or elders carry out their work. Now, the name given to this special group is deacons. Deacons. A deacon is a servant, and it is an office God-ordained in the church. And it is so, so the works of the church can be carried out in a more expedient manner. That, designa- uh, that designation denotes a particular class of servant. We're all servants, but we're not all deacons, right? It's just like uh, Levites. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul began by saying this, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, after elders, every congregation is constantly in need of good deacons to help carry out the work. Any man, whether young or old, who meets the qualifications, we ought to train these young men, train the older men, to have a desire to fulfill that work. The work of a deacon is not one that is easy. It may not even be one that is desired by others, but it is a fulfilling work and it is a much needed work. We need faithful elders and we need faithful deacons. Here's the thing about being a deacon. One will not get a whole lot of pats on the back because most of the work performed by a deacon is done behind the scenes. Most people don't even understand what happens. All we know is we come in and we turn the air conditioning on and it is cool. We go to the bathroom and we wash our hands and the water comes on, right? We, we come to prepare the Lord's Supper and the things that we need to prepare the Lord's Supper with happen to be there at our grasp. When uh, my girls were younger, we used to call that, whatever duty it was, uh, say the kitchen fairy or the laundry fairy, right? It just happened. 
And as far as they knew, it just happened while they were asleep, right? But that's not the case, is it? Usually deacons work over a particular area. Ruth Harms Calkin wrote a poem entitled, I Wonder. She said, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Like the poem, a work of a deacon is one of the greatest works that can be fulfilled. Now those special servants have a name. But let's talk for just a few moments tonight about their need. Do we need them? What does a deacon do? And a deacon is a man. What does he do within the framework of the church? The thing that a deacon does is in his particular area, chosen by the eldership, he aids the eldership in carrying out that work in that particular location. Now, here's something we need to also understand about deacons. They're not co-leaders with elders. They're not leaders in the Lord's church any more than all of us are leaders by example. Now, elders have authority. They're not just leaders by example. They have authority. Deacons are leaders in that they're Christians and they are examples. But they're not co-leaders with elders. They're not junior elders. They do not have any more authority than anyone else unless that authority has been given to them by the eldership to oversee a certain work. Now an eldership may say, for example, this particular deacon is going to take care of the building and they give him parameters within which he can work. He can uh, authorize certain works to be done up to a certain amount of money or whatever the case may not even be a certain amount of money. That's up to the eldership. But that is where his authority ends. He may also oversee grounds upkeep, financial areas, anything that needs to be looked after. He can be assigned to that by an eldership. A deacon is a trusted servant that fulfills the duties on time and that he does them well. He is someone the eldership can count on to do what they say they will do and when they say they will do it. They have to be accountable. They have to be responsible. Again, he is not a junior elder. Instead, his role is to aid the eldership in carrying out the business of the church. And like the eldership, there are qualifications, and they're very similar, but there are just a few differences. Let's continue reading what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, now beginning with verse 8. He says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested. Then let them, be, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
Again, there are a few differences. A deacon must be a Christian man, obviously, just as an elder. He must be a man of dignity. He cannot be a hypocrite. That's what double-tongued mean. He can't tell this person one thing and someone something else. He has to be a man of honor. He is not given to much wine. Now, does that intend that he can drink a little wine? As long as he does not get drunk. And, and uh, there are a lot of people, even within the church, that say, well, social drinking, that's what is being supported here. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We have to understand the terms, right? What does much mean? Not given to much wine. Much means beyond that which is required. Well, when is alcohol ever required? Well, it's not in our day and time, is it? But at one time it was. When we look at the example of Timothy and Paul telling him to drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. And there's no doubt in my mind he was talking about alcoholic wine there. Timothy had some kind of a bug or some kind of an organism, some kind of a problem in his uh, digestive tract and it needed to be killed because alcohol is a poison. And so anything beyond what is required is much. Notice... Paul had to tell Timothy, don't drink any more water, but drink wine. His habit was to drink water. His habit was not to drink alcoholic wine. So in essence, Paul prescribed for him a medication. It's just like in today's world. We're given a a medication to stop pain if we have it, right? A lot of us have been prescribed at one time or another the the well-known, quote, pain pill, right? And let me tell you something. I'm thankful for them. I've had kidney stones in the past, and let me tell you, nothing is better than something to stop the pain. Now, what if someone is prescribed pain medication? And it works, and, but also they kind of enjoy the side effect of it. So instead of taking it because of the, the reason for the prescription, they take it simply because they enjoy the effects. Well, that's much, right? They've gone beyond that which is prescribed or that which is needed. He's not uh, uh, to uh, to be greedy. And he cannot be a person who loves money. Now, I don't know any of us that do not like money. If we didn't like money, I think maybe something's wrong. We can't do anything in this world without money, right? Can't feed ourselves, can't clothe ourselves, we can't go back and forth to work. We can't help uh, support the works of the church. We have to have to have money, but we can't love money. That can't be our sole purpose in life, and we also must have a clear conscience. How do we gain a clear conscience in this life? Peter told us, didn't he? 1 Peter 3, verse 20, in his uh, comparing the, the flood, the waters that lifted up the ark and saved the people of the uh, Noahic flood, Noah and his family, he said the like figure of the same example where baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have to be faithful members. Anyone who is a deacon must have a clear conscience. It means he's to be faithful. And he needs to be one who studies the Word, right? His actions must match his beliefs. Have you ever known someone, I've talked to people who have found themselves in situations of their own making where they've been less than honest, maybe with their spouse or with someone else, and they say it is absolutely 
eating them up inside. They can't even keep their lives straight any longer. And they're, they're under this constant cloud of not living an honest life. They don't have a clear conscience. And that's not what a deacon is to have. I believe one of the most important aspects of a deacon is he is to be proved. He is to be proved. Someone places membership with a congregation. It appears from the outward that he meets all qualifications of being a deacon, but we've known him for three months. Can that man be a deacon at that location? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He has to be proved. In other words, he has to have a track record. He has to have a paper trail, right? We have to know what his actions are. Like an elder, he must be blameless or beyond reproach. He can't be blameable in this life of someone who is does not possess Christian qualities. The wife of a deacon must also be dignified, not a gossiper, must be faithful. How many times have you seen a couple uh, who the husband or the wife one tainted the partnership? to the general public, right? Someone may say, well, she is a wonderful wife, and why in the world she's married to that fellow? I have no idea. He's nothing but a scoundrel. You know, or someone says, boy, he would make a wonderful elder or deacon, but his wife is constantly in someone else's business and gossiping or whatever the case may be. See, we can't have that. We can't have that. That should never be the case in the church, but certainly within the offices of the church. Their marriage has to be scriptural. Just as the marriage of an elder to his wife. One wife, one husband for all of eternity. God said, or Jesus said in Matthew 19 and in Matthew chapter 5, that if a spouse is unfaithful, then the, the innocent party can put that person away and can marry another. But that has to be the case or else they both commit adultery. So we can't be married, divorced, and remarried on other than scriptural grounds, right? Scriptural reasons. Fornication. Someone must, uh, uh, if someone is married again, maybe their, their wife died. And that breaks the marriage bond and they can marry again according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. They have to be married according to God's rules and they have to train their children according to God's rules. We talked this morning, Ephesians 6 verse 4, Paul said, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That absolutely applies to deacons, but it applies to all of us as well. They must be spiritual leaders in the home, and they must oversee their home in the appropriate manner. See, faithful deacons, they are an asset and a blessing to the congregation where they serve. Now let's close with this idea. Deacons serve tables. Period not a glamorous job it's not a job where someone is going to constantly be complimenting the deacon but what does that mean because that's what the word means deacon means to serve tables now that doesn't just mean the lord's supper table making sure that it's prepared it means serving the table of the lord period it means that they serve the entire organization of the church in some way. You know what deacons do? And I've been, I've, I've been the direct beneficiary of this. Deacons serve the table of the minister. I don't know a minister, a faithful evangelist in the brotherhood today that has not been aided and not had his work 
made uh, so much easier because of the work of a faithful deacon. People who receive benevolence from the church are served by deacons. They serve the table of the poor. You know, there are many benevolent agencies in the world who have gotten a foothold simply because the church has not appropriately carried out that duty. Now, that's not the case here, but that is the case in general. The Lord is to receive the the glory of helping someone, right? Not the Salvation Army. Absolutely not. The Lord needs to receive that glory. When we read in Matthew 25, 34 through 40, and Christ begins to describe those on the right hand, those who gave me a drink when I was thirsty, those who gave me food when I was hungry, those who clothed me, those who visited me in prison. And and they say, well, Lord, when did we see you thirsty or hungry or naked or visited you in prison? He said, when you did it to the least of my disciples, you did it to me. And then he looked over to those on the left. He said, you didn't give me water when I was thirsty. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't visit me while I was in prison. They said, when did we see you? In those positions, he said, when you didn't do it to the least of my servants, you didn't do it to me. A deacon is a servant, and not just to those within the church. To those men who are able to serve as elders and deacons, we need for them to give this prayerful, needful thought. When that comes a reality, there will be men who are qualified to be deacons once an eldership is established. Here's the thing, all members of the Lord's church are equally important. Equally important, but we need to focus our attention, maybe a little extra at this time, on the office of elder and the office of deacon. Because we need them here at White Oak. And we're fortunate, we've shown growth. We've demonstrated a willingness to work and to do those things necessary to get the work of the church done. The ultimate obligation of every member, whether... That member is an elder or a deacon because that leaves out all of our sisters, right? The obligation of all members of the church is to bring lost souls to God. How do we do that? Well, we've been doing it. We carry the gospel to the community around us. And God bless this congregation for all of those efforts that we have been involved with even at this present time. But we must not only worry about those without. We have to worry about ourselves, right? That's what Paul told Timothy. You, you preach the gospel. In doing that, you'll not only save those who are listening, you'll save yourself. Paul said he kept himself in submission, under control, because he didn't want to be cast away. We have to constantly be guarding ourselves. And we do that by being obedient to the gospel plan of salvation. Now, all of us here are Christians. We understand what that is. But we have to also be reminded. We have to remain that way. We have to be steadfast. Never be weary in well-doing, right? Paul said, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. If you've become unfaithful for some reason, come back to God through repentance, confession, prayer, whether publicly or privately. Take care of that. Do that as we stand and as we sing.